Hello there, I'm Marina Mahadeo. Welcome to Busy Reading Books, a podcast where we'll explore the world through words, featuring some of my favourite books and authors. Hi everyone, it's Marina again with this week's episode of Busy Reading Books by Zafigo.com, where we travel the world through books. Today I thought I would talk about non-fiction books, specifically narrative non-fiction, which is also known as creative non-fiction or literary non-fiction. If you don't know what that is, I'll explain shortly. But first, I've been reading a lot about gender differences in reading habits and came across some interesting facts. Overall, women tend to read more books than men, which I don't think is surprising. Even here in Malaysia, 78% of book buyers are actually women. In a survey done in 2017, for example, in the US, it was found that the average woman reads 14 books a year compared to 9 books for the average man. In Malaysia, Literacy statistics in 2016 reported that out of 85% of Malaysians who read regularly, yeah, and we have a high literacy rate, so that's not that surprising, 77% of them preferred newspapers, 3% read magazines, 3% read books, and 1.6% read comics. Pretty full, isn't it? And also, a 2019 survey by e-commerce firm Picodi found that although Malaysians rank among the highest book-buying countries in the world, this is not the same as being among the highest readers in the world. We're not among the top 30 reading countries in the world. And in fact, countries like India, China, Thailand, Indonesia are above us. But also... When they buy these books, what are they buying? What are they reading? It turns out, again, I don't think this is surprising. It turns out that women prefer to read fiction, while men are more likely to read non-fiction. In an earlier survey in 2012, it turns out that 55% of women who read books read fiction, while 48% read non-fiction, while the opposite is true of men. Now, why is there this gender divide in these genres? There are, of course, many theories about this. One is that men like to read books that are somehow instructional or educational, as someone put it. They read books like they read photography manuals. <laughs> in the minds of some men, there is a stigma to reading fiction that is a pastime not worthy of men's valuable time, which is a bit odd, right, when you consider that So many of the top-selling fiction writers are men. The prizes go to men, etc., etc. But when it comes to reading, it's a different thing. If you ask a man what he reads, he'll admit to reading newspapers, magazines, and non-fiction books. And if you ask him if he does read any fiction, then he might admit to reading books by male authors who write the sort of macho books that appeal to them. Thrillers, war stories, adventure stories, James Bond, you know. If you remember my interview with my dad some time ago, he reads adventure stories, adventure novels by people like Wilbur Smith because he likes that sort of rugged, take-charge kind of guy. On the other hand, women prefer fiction 
because we like to empathize with the characters in the novel. We like the emotion and the romance, all seemingly feminine interests. If any of you have ever looked at any Malaysian bookstore best-selling fiction charts, you'll see that in the Bahasa Malaysia category particularly, the top sellers are romances. And I don't think it's that much different in the English category either. And you can bet that 100% of those buyers of these books are women. Because what men would be caught reading those romance novels, right? So here, today, I want to make a pitch for breaking such gender stereotypes. Basically, I would like to persuade you, and I know you're mostly women, that you should also read non-fiction. And that's not just because I write non-fiction. <laughs> I know that women do read non-fiction, especially if their biographies are women. I've read plenty of those. I've read the biographies or autobiographies of women like Edith Piaf, Simone Signore, Lauren Bacall, and people like Tara Westover who wrote Educated, which is a non-fiction autobiography, actually. And for the longest time, I also resisted reading non-fiction, other types, apart from biographies, I mean. In fact, in my first class at my master's course, which was about writing non-fiction, when my tutor asked what books I read, every single book I mentioned was fiction, was a novel. On the other hand, a male friend of mine who wrote a novel told me that he only reads non-fiction. So the only fiction he would read is the one he wrote himself, presumably. So yes, a lot of non-fiction can be very dry, almost academic, often just like photography manuals, which if you're like me, are best ignored. But there is a genre of non-fiction that's worth looking at. And those are the books known as narrative non-fiction or creative non-fiction. So, what is narrative non-fiction? Narrative non-fiction, also known as creative non-fiction or literary non-fiction, is a true story written in the style of a fiction novel. While the emphasis is on the storytelling itself, narrative nonfiction must remain as accurate to the truth as possible. So basically, if someone can take certain facts from someone's life or a historical event or even a scientific breakthrough and make a story out of it, that is narrative nonfiction. So what's great about it? Well, it's like reading a novel but everything in it is true. Now, I'm sure you're already very familiar with biographies and memoirs, which are often written like a novel about a real person's life. But there are other books that are also written in the same way, and they are equally riveting. Let me give an example. In 2011, Rebecca Scoot wrote an incredible book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. It's actually a book about science. The story of how in 1951, some cancer cells were taken from a black woman called Henrietta Lacks. And from there, a whole line of cells were grown and used in all sorts of scientific studies. 
So basically, although Henrietta Lacks died in 1951, the cells from her body lived on and kept on living in labs all over the world, hence why they were considered immortal. Known as Hela, it was the oldest and most commonly used human cell line. But the wonder of this book is that Rebecca Scoot has managed to tell a very compelling story where not only has she been able to explain the signs of cell lines to those of us who are not scientists, she's also painted a portrait of the human who provided them. Henrietta Lacks was a 31-year-old mother of five who died of cervical cancer. Scoot explains that not only was Henrietta Lacks not asked for her consent to have her cells harvested, but her heirs gained nothing from the many, many scientific findings that ensued from the use of her cells. Basically, Lacks cells benefited humankind in thousands of ways. Yet until this book came out, nobody had ever known her name nor did her family know about all this history. Scoot wove in also the many ethical and racial aspects of what happened to Henrietta Lacks in a way that we can see the intersections of science and racism. Her writing is so beautifully done that in 2011, her book won the National Academy's Communication Award for Best Creative Work that helps the public understanding of topics in science, engineering or medicine. If you think science is not your thing, try this book. I highly, highly recommend it. It is really a great story of a woman who donated part of her body to science without knowing about it and without her heirs knowing about it and how we have benefited so much from that donation. And there are many other books like that. One of my favorite non-fiction books is Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond. I think when someone who's trained in some other field also has a flair for writing, then they really hit gold. Jared Diamond is an American geographer, historian and an ornithologist and expert on birds. Guns, Germs and Steel, which came out in 1997, was actually his second book. And it talks about why Eurasian people, that is people from the European continent, were able to conquer and displace Native Americans, Australians and Africans. Australians meaning indigenous Australians, yeah? Instead of vice versa. It's not due to some racial or genetic advantage. Instead, he presents very compelling evidence about how the features of the Eurasian continent in particular, its high diversity of wild plant and animal species suitable for domestication. That means you can make wild things, you know, suitable to be bred and kept at home. Or, yeah. And its east-west major axis that favoured the spread of those domesticates, people, technologies and diseases for long distances with little change in latitude. What that means is that if you just have to go from east to west along more or less the same latitude, you're going to experience the same conditions 
to grow food, settle down and develop technologies like guns and cannons, as well as diseases that might kill people, think of the plague, but at the same time develop immunity in them. If, however, you lived on the American or African continents that sit on the north-south axis, then conditions change as you move from the very cold up north to the warm middle region and back to the cold south. Which means that some plants and animals and germs are confined to only certain latitudes, right? That doesn't mean that great civilizations can't develop. I mean, there were the Aztecs and the Incas who built great cities and everything. But once the Eurasians came over, bringing their guns and germs with them, these great civilizations just had no defenses. They had developed very different things and, and whatever illnesses they had were endemic to their area only, not something that was imported from Europe. Guns, Germs and Steel won a Pulitzer Prize and a Ventis Prize for science books and the 1997 Phi Beta Kappa Award in Science and was made into a National Geographic TV series. I have to look for that, that series. That would be great. It's really fascinating. This whole scientific theory about how the civilizations came to be and, and, and how they destroyed others. And it got me hooked on Jared Diamond because he's able to explain all of this in a way that's like a story, not dry at all. After that, I read his book Collapse about why some societies collapse and some thrive based on his studies of various societies. Uh, for example, in the Norse and Inuit of Greenland, the Maya, the Anasazi, the indigenous people of Rapa Nui or Easter Island, Japan, Haiti, the Dominican Republic and modern Montana. I remember clearly his analysis of why the Rwandan massacre happened and was intrigued by his explanation that it was so much about tribal rivalries, but actually about overpopulation and the crisis it can lead to in these societies when, you know, very few resources are shared by a lot of people, there's bound to be conflict. And if some people direct those conflicts or the reasons for those conflicts to tribes or races, then it looks as if it's tribal warfare, but in fact, it has a very economic background. I also have his book, The World Until Yesterday, but I actually can't remember what that was about, so I must read it again. Some of the narrative nonfiction books I've read fairly recently are The Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker. He's a cognitive psychologist and linguist who says that as much as we see violence around us today, in fact, overall, if you look at the big picture, there is a lot less violence than in the past. We've had less actual wars, and that's partly because we have become more connected. We have become more used to being among strangers. Whereas in the old days, if a stranger came into our village, he or she is very likely to be assumed to be hostile and killed. You know, people used to kidnap 
brides from different tribes and then war would ensue and etc etc and peace would only be uh, able to be held if they kind of married each other you know <laughs> and formed familial alliances that sort of thing uh, but today you know this really doesn't quite happen anymore it still does in pockets i think um, around the world but generally despite our much more sophisticated weapons that can kill hundreds and thousands in one go overall actually according to steven pinker at least and you'll have to read his book to be convinced uh there is less violence it's not an easy read it's not as easy as jared diamond i i must say but the theory is interesting most recently i've read non-fiction books that have made me think a lot about the current problems that we face particularly with the internet and the spread of misinformation and and you know how everything seems to be upended that what's true or what used to be true are now not true and lies are now touted as the truth etc etc one is a book uh, called this is not propaganda adventures in the war against reality by a journalist called Peter Pomerantsev. Peter Pomerantsev actually was born in the Soviet Union in the Ukraine when it was still part of the Soviet Union. His parents were um, literary people and also kind of dissidents and they moved when he was very young uh, to the UK and he was brought up there and became a journalist that specialized in Russia. and he studied the way the russians promoted disinformation and propaganda in the media and he wrote about it in uh, two books there was another one um i forget what it's called something like this is not the truth or something and this book this is not propaganda and it would really resonate with us these days because it's very you know this disinformation is very cleverly done in such a way that we don't even realize that these stories are false and in fact it's quite scary actually because pomeranzev shows that what they do is that they don't seed stories in the big media the media that we are all used to they seed it in some small obscure place somewhere some obscure newspaper somewhere and somehow that gets picked up and viraled and then it goes on and then it becomes a big story and then everyone accepts it as the truth that's really really scary and i really recommend you read this book by peter pomeranzev i i think he probably has a, a um ted talk somewhere or something it really makes you think a lot more about what you read in the papers and online Then the other two books about the issues of today that I've been reading are Adam Grant's Think Again, which is about the power of knowing and I guess admitting what you don't know. And uh, for example, he starts off by talking about the inventor of the BlackBerry who refused to see that people were beginning to want more than just a phone and a message service in their hands and they wanted actually a mini computer you you remember the blackberry days how everyone loved it because we all love the 
BlackBerry keyboard where you could type messages without looking at it and you could send messages. What was it called? A BlackBerry messenger service, right? We were using that a great deal. And then when Apple and other companies started producing smartphones that use touchscreen, that's one, and also that those phones could do much more than just, you know, make calls or send messages. You could, you know, browse and do all sorts of things on it. And this guy, the inventor of the BlackBerry, just didn't think that that was going to be a big thing. Now he knows, right? Very few people have the, the BlackBerry anymore and it's, it's been hard for them to catch up. It's almost the same with Nokia. If you remember Nokia, everyone wanted a Nokia at one point. And the other book that I've been reading, it's, it's kind of related also. I, I, if anything, it's kind of the opposite of, of that story. Um, Sherry Tuckle's Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age, where she talks about the danger to our human psyche and our propensity to empathize with others if we only text each other and not actually talk with each other. How many times have you seen people at the same table supposedly having dinner together, but they're all on their phones and they're all talking to other people? And this is particularly true of young people, but I've seen adults do it too. So how do you connect with the person in front of you if you're constantly talking to people elsewhere in the world, you know? And that's what she's saying, that we need to bring back conversation, especially face-to-face conversation, because we get a lot of cues from talking to someone through their facial expressions, their body language, and that's the way we empathize with them and we we understand more about what they're saying, which we can't do just, you know, on our phone screens. So basically, I'm saying that if you wander into the realm of narrative nonfiction, you will find non-fiction books that are not only educational, but also enjoyable. They are true stories well told. And when you think about it, all novels also come from somewhere truthful, which is why we identify so much with some books, yeah? Because, you know, a writer, except even, well, maybe fantasy writers, but even then I'm not sure. But a writer who writes a novel has to write it from some sort of background also, values and stuff, you know? So there's still a little bit of truth. There's truth in there. Um, So the line between actually fiction and non-fiction nowadays is getting to be very, very thin, very blurred. I did a course when I was doing my master's called something called a non-fiction novel, which is intriguing because of that very fact that that writers write from a particular personal background and they insert a lot of that background, uh, what they grew up with, into the stories. And sometimes they do it deliberately. We were reading this guy called Siebold who would write whole books with photographs and it looks like they're real and I was really convinced that it was him in these photographs until I found out that he buys photographs at you know antique fairs and all that and puts it in there and weaves stories around them doesn't that freak you out 
<laughs> yeah. So, but I do recommend that you try some of these narrative non-fiction books. In fact, this is how I managed to read several books at the same time by making sure they're not in the same genre so that I don't get confused, right? So I might read one fiction book and I might um read another one which is non-fiction, then I might listen to a fictional audiobook, that sort of thing. It's great. It lets you get through more books in a year than you would normally. So do try it. Yeah. Try some narrative non-fiction and then tell me what you think. Until next time. Cheerio. Hello there. I'm Marina Mahadev. Welcome to Busy Reading Books, a podcast where we'll explore the world through words, featuring some of my favorite books and authors.